0: Um, this week is Parashat Korach, and um, the the story of Korach is a complex story. It's a story of rebellion, and it raises immediately a chronological problem, which actually speaks to a much larger problem about the literary makeup of Chumash. Um, because if you think about the story of Korach, um, which comes on the heels in the in the literary flow of things on the heels of the what we call chetam raglim and the consequences of that Um, there's something very strange about it which is that korach at this point mounts a rebellion against the selection of aharon as the kohen and the timing is a little weird because actually the levites were the ones who were totally left out of the story of the raglim they didn't have somebody who sent they weren't singled out for punishment they weren't singled out for 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 citation or anything they're just not part of the story the question is why are they here but there's a larger problem in the story is and we're going to look at it in detail but is the test that moshe gives to Korach when Korach presents his, his challenge the test that Kor, that moshe gives to Korach is okay let's get to you know get all your men together and everybody bring a censer and put uh uh in it and whoever god chooses that will be the Holy One, who will be the selected member of B'nai Levi. Now, if you are Korah or you are one of his henchmen, it turns out to be twenty five, 250 guys, and you hear this as the test, by the way, you have an option, right, which is the old Goliath problem. I'll take you back a little bit. And there's something kind of strange that happens here that also happens there in the story of Goliath. The Shaul and his army line up against the Pleshtim. Now we know the story. And they're all lined up, ready to go to war. And suddenly, this huge guy, this colossus, comes out of the Pleshti camp with all this armor on him and yells and says, Listen, uh, why should we go to war? I am uh, Pleshti, and you guys are all servants of or slaves to Shaul. Let's go mano a mano, and whoever wins, wins. So if uh, I beat you, which I'm going to do, then you'll all become our slaves. And you beat me, ha-ha, never happened, then we'll be your slaves. Now, the interesting thing about this is it's a false dichotomy, meaning he's offering us an alternative, which is not really a false dichotomy. It's a, it's a suppressed choice, meaning either you're going to win or I'm going to win. And then there's a third alternative, which is we don't want your whole deal. We're just going to go to war, army against <laughs> army. But nobody goes that way. They're so cowed by Goliath that they buy into his choice and they say, well, we can't fight you. So we're going to sit here with a tail between the legs until some kid comes up with a slingshot and wins the war. And the same thing sort of happens here. Moshe says, "Okay, you guys get your senses together, et cetera. Now, the people could say, "Okay, we give up. You won. You bluffed us out. Or they could say, "Okay, we'll do it, which is what they do. Dumb decision. There's also a third choice, which is they could say, "No, we don't like your, we don't agree with your choice of our own. We don't agree with your choice of tests, and we think that you uh, that you chose with nepotism. We think you chose wrongly, whatever it is. and we're just going to declare ourselves to Bitcoin anymore. We want to, we're going to derive a different test. Each one of us is going to stand up and hold a stick in the air, and whichever stick waves, I don't know, I'm making something up. But instead, they buy into it. Now, what's really odd about this is. That if we're at this point in history, that means that we are somewhere in the middle of the second year, meaning that we left Egypt a year ago and, and, uh, and we've been at the foot of Har Sinai for almost a year. So it's now the end of the spring of the second year. And then we started marching and then we'll, we'll go with Chazal that was Tisha B'Av the decree of the Meraglim. So it's a couple months later, which means it has been less than five months since the dedication of the Mishkan. Now, what happened on the first day of the dedication of the Mishkan? Which in most, most according to most, is Rosh Chodesh Nisan. If if it's the eighth day of Nisan, what happened? Now our own sons are killed. Now our own sons How were they killed? By <clears throat> God. Right. And the fire came down and devoured them, and they were holding censers with Torah in it. So I got to ask you, as we say in Brooklyn, what kind of idiots can agree to a test to stand up in front of God with a censer in Torah and say... Hit me with your best shot. Because, by the way, either way you could be a loser. Meaning, if God chose Aaron, which is the case, and the other guys who show up are fakes, then they're going to get burned up. And, by the way, if one of those guys believes I'm the real dude, he might also get burned up. Because what did Moshe say to Aaron after Nadav and Aviv were killed? Oh, this is what God said. He becomes sanctified through those who are close to him. It could be that Moshe is saying, okay, let's see who God chooses to burn. Why would anybody do this? And this leads us to the problem of when this whole story happened. Now, we have to note that that uh, the Ibn Ezra, right here at the beginning on Source 4, already takes the position. Remember, the Ibn Ezra, along with most to be shown him, is of the approach that the Torah, the story of the Torah is not told in order, and that the literary structure of the Torah, the literary sequencing of the Torah is driven by other considerations, not chronology. And of course, the Machloka becomes very famous in the context of the relationship between the commands to build the Mishkan and the Chaita Egel. The Ibn Ezra and Rashi and others all say that the command to build the Mishkan was the result of the Egel, even though in the Torah, the Egel is told afterwards. The Ramban famously says mm-hmm. everything's in order. we talked about it a few years ago. But here you have it as an example here. Sure, sure. Presumably, then, uh, Korak must believe that what he's claiming is in some way fundamentally, fundamentally different than all the other um, problems uh, preceding him. If they preceded him, correct. In other words, if you're coming on the heels of all those other things that happened, including Nadevan Avihu, and you think, well, I'm getting, you know, what do they say? That One of the greatest signs of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and thinking you get a different result. So a, a, a slight form of that is the old phrase, "I'm different," right? Right, because I can hit the pedal in the middle and it'll go, because I have different feet. Right. No, that's still a brake pedal. So, um, so if Korach thinks my claim is a more justified claim then what, then Nadav and they weren't making a claim. So let's take a look at it. Deben Ezra here says, "Vayikach Korach source for." meaning before they left Tarsinai, which in the chronology now they're, they've gone, it was at that point when the, the firstborn were swapped for the Levim, that Bnei Israel Yisrael thought Moshe was doing this to promote his own tribe as nepotism. And he specifically picked out his sub-family, Kahat. So the other Levim ganged up on him, which is it's an odd thing. In other words, the way Nebuchadnezzar is structuring it, I think he's honest in the here, but I disagree with his conclusion, is that at the point where Moshe swapped the Levim and told them that you have to take all the Bechorot who have been sanctified with Makah they became sanctified that night in Egypt, and swapped them for the Levim, so the Levim now becomes sanctified, and then the 273 surplus Pachorot, you have to redeem with the five Shekolim. So he said, oh, at that point, all the rest of Am Yisrael said, oh, Moshe is promoting his own tribe, and then the Levim got angry, because they said, and you're turning all of us as subservient to your brother aharon And so that opened things up. Right, and so therefore, and then he says, "Oh, that's why Datan and Aviram, who are members of the tribe of Reuven, get roped into this." I'm going to read it differently. Get roped into this because they have the same kind of claim. Reuven was the elder brother, and therefore we should be the elder tribe. And now you're taking that away and giving it to Levi. This is a very difficult claim, I think. But the, the point I'm trying to bring out is that the Ibn was also bothered by the chronology. When did this happen? Now, the Ramban, true to form, here in Source 5, just simply says that this happened after the Meraglim. And you see in the bold, uh, bold section, <speaking in Hebrew> When the 10 guys got killed, Moshe did not pray for them. Moshe did pray that God should not destroy everybody else. Who died, the the leaders of 10 of the tribes, not Levi, by the way, were killed. And the decree was that everybody else will die in the desert. Then people start getting upset at Moshe. Things aren't working well. So Korach now found the wedge. It's a, it's a good argument to saying that Korach is pulling the, his, his uh, rebellion now because <clears throat> uh, it's like an advantageous moment. Everybody's already upset at Moshe about the Meraglim. It's a great time to strike while the iron is hot. It works except for this problem is that if this is happening now in the summer of the second year, why would anybody agree to a test with the Torah? It's suicide. And it, by the way, turns out to be suicide, as we'll see. So I want to go in a slightly different direction to start and then come back to the text and talk about the chronology of what happened and suggest something different. But again, it has to do with the literary nature of of narratives in the Torah. There is a famous Midrash uh, in the Tanchuma that Korach utilized um, Tzitzit as a way of publicly challenging Moshe. And the famous story goes that Korach got his 250 men out there, and they all put on a garment that was purely treat. And he said, Moshe, does this garment need tzitzit? And Moshe said, Yes. And he said, Well, that's silly. If one treilat string can work for the whole garment, then why would a garment that needs it all need it? Right. Where did they get that from? They got that from Smichuta Parshiot, because the part the source number one, which is the Parsh Tzitzit is right before Korach, meaning the story of Korach comes immediately afterwards. She's got to say, look, why why is these two things connected? It must be that the story of Tzitzit has something to do with Korach. Well, indeed, it does have something to do with Korach, but in a much more obvious way than using as part of Korach's argument. Let's think about what's happened. B'nai Yisrael are in the Midbar and sitting in the middle of the camp is the Mishkan, and the chief operators of the Mishkan, the officials of the Mishkan of the Kohanim, And among them, Father Aaron is the Kohen Gadol. And the Kohen Gadol is distinguished from the other Kohanim with four garments. And the uppermost of those garments is a strap that goes across his head of gold that says, Kodesh Hashem. That's called the tzitz. Okay, very good. We know about the tzitz. And source two says, you make a tzitz. And by the way, how is the tzitz held on? It's held on with Petil Tachelet, with a blue string that goes in back. In other words, it's tied in back And that's how it's held onto his head. Very nice. And we've got this mishkan, and everybody knows that Vitzal worked very hard to make all these things, including a beautiful tzitz tied with a patil tochelit that Aaron, our Kohen Gadol, wears when he goes in. Beautiful, all right. And when he does avodah. Then here we are in the Midbar, and after the whole episode with the meraglim, we suddenly hear about a new mitzvah. I'm going to backtrack on this later. A new mitzvah called tzitzit, and what are we told about? Let's take a look at the parsha of tzitzit against the backdrop of being in the desert in the in the camp with the Mishkan. Now when you hear the word tzitzit it sounds like a little tzitz. And where are we going to put it? So put these tzitzit on their garments on the corners and put on them a p'til t'chelet. This sounds exactly like the Koran Gadol. And who's going to do it? Everybody. And then when you put this together, it will now be called tzitzit. The tzitzit and vasitemotam. You'll see it and you'll do all the mitzvot. Wow. And then watch this. We're going to talk about that phrase. Do not stray after your eyes. Here we go. We Now you will be holy to God. Now, if I'm in among Amisrael and I'm here in the desert, and this has happened, and I'm told, okay, everybody, you're going to get a little mini seats that you put on your garments. Tilta And that's a seats. Which means now I'm a little coin gadol, You're a little coin, everyone's a little coin gadol, and we're all which means you could. You Make the argument that the caste system has been broken, or at least that the caste system is not so inviolate, and everybody can be a coin gadol. We already saw that with Nazir, you can be coin gadol for a month or for an hour long. And well, this wasn't, how- that in, uh, wasn't that already stipulated in some place in Vaicra? What, what was stipulated uh, that we be uh, uh, people of uh, sure, priest, absolutely. Uh, we're a holy nation at Harsinai, Konim. All very nice and all very ephemeral. All very ephemeral. Right? The Parshav Kadoshim, Kadoshim to you, kadosh ani, Beautiful. How are you Kadosh? You live a holy life. But now suddenly you've got a garment that by wearing it, you're Kodesh. Which, by the way, sounds like the Koin Gadol, who is the holiest guy in the nation, and he wears its seats. So suddenly we're all that. And watch how it comes out with Korach. <laughs> Big shots. What does Korach say? Everybody's kadosh. God is in our midst. Why are you lording yourself? In other words, they're saying, we have a mitzvah called Tzitzit. That's the other way I'm reading it, because it's the immediate pre- previous passage. And the Parshav Tzitzit says, essentially, that every one of us wears a little bit of a coin Godel's outfit, and we're all kiddoshim. So why are you making a hierarchy of Kedusha? Now, this is a, there's a very interesting response that Moshe has, which shows brilliance and real depth of understanding. If you look at Korach's opening salvo, it sounds like Korach is arguing for a breakdown of the class division. No more koin gadol, no more koanim, no more levim. Everybody's holy. Right? Good. Very nice. I'm not going to call it Marxist, but eh, whatever. But what does Moshe do? Moshe sees through it. And what does he say? Okay, good. Here's what I want you to do. Tomorrow God's going to let you know which one is kadosh. Now at that point, if Korach was honest, what would he say? What do you mean which one is kadosh? I'm arguing that we're all kadosh. But of course, Korach is lying. Korach is not trying to say everybody should be kadosh. He's trying to say I should be the one. And Moshe sees through it. And so Moshe doesn't say to him, you know, you're right. Everybody's holy, but some are holier than others. He just cuts right through it and says, you know what, Korach, let's find out. God's going to decide which one is the kadosh. And so he ge- and Korach buys into it and says, okay, good, we'll do that test. And of course, the Torah thing. So the connection with tzitzit is pretty clear. It's pretty obvious in Korach's words. But that raises a different question, which is, a, like I said, a broader question, which is, when were we given the mitzvah tzitzit? When were we given the mitzvah of paraduma? When were we given the mitzvot of matnot kihuna? I'm mentioning things that show up for the first time in Bamidbar. Right. Okay. So keep that in mind, and I just want to point out. Um, we're actually going to stick with this particular point. I want to point out that in this story, there is another rebellion going on, which is Datan and Aviram who are rebelling not against Aharon, rebelling against Moshe. Every time the Tan and Aviram speak, they speak to Moshe. And the claim against Moshe is a claim of bad leadership. You didn't take us out to a good land, you took us out to the desert to die here. And this seems to be something that really happened now, after the decree that we're all going to die in the desert. It makes sense. But the Korach thing, which is aimed at Aharon, Moshe and Aharon, it's about the Kuna, seems to have taken place at an earlier point like the Ibn Ezra says right so um, what we have to do is to separate these out and that's why as you see I color coded the korax natanviram and no there's no political intent in the colors there um, but i want to ask a larger question the mitzvah of paraduma the mitzvah of paraduma which involves also tumat ohel meaning that you become Tameh if you're under the same cover as a dead body and uh, the purification process from that. When were we told about that? So if you follow the Torah chronologically and you maintain, and the Ramban is not claiming this, and you maintain that the mitzvot that are in Bamid Bar Yotet weren't given until that point in history, you got a real problem. Because when's the first time that we encounter death as a problem of Tuma? We encounter it when Nadav and Avihu die. Nadav and Avihu die, and immediately Moshe tells their cousins to take their bodies out. Why do they have to take their bodies out? Because their presence, I mean, it's obviously a problem, but their presence is making is creating Tuma. And why can't their own brothers take them out? Because their brothers can't become Tamei. Which means tumat mate is something that already exists. Right? Besides which, already in Parshat Nasso, we're told every tumay mate has to leave. In Parshat Bahalotcha, we hear about people with tumay mate and capering, bring korban pesach. So we already hear about tumat mate. But the laws show up only in Chukat, in chapter 19, seemingly in the 40th year. So what are we supposed to do with that? So the answer is actually fairly straightforward. We were given the Torah at Har Sinai. When I say Har Sinai, I'm going to read it broadly, which means some of the mitzvot we were given up on top of the mountain, some of the mitzvot inside in a cloud, Mishpatim, some of the mitzvot up on top of the mountain, and many of the mitzvot we were given in Ohel Moed. After we set up the Mishkan, Hashem speaks to Moshe in the Mishkan like He promised, and gives us the rest of the mitzvot. Very nice. Okay, we got all the mitzvot at Har Sinai, on top, bottom, or in in the Mishkan, all at Har Sinai. What happens? And I'll give you an example of this from the book of Bereshit. What happens is that when Moshe is writing the Torah, he puts particular mitzvot in other places in the Torah to connect them to a story. And where does this happen in Bereshit? So I'm going to start by asking a question that will sound like it's very much off topic. We're going to bring it back. If I kill a pig and I eat the sinew of the hindquarters of the pig, did I violate gid hanasheh? What do you think? Did I violate eating the Gita hanasheh? What do you think? That's the secondary violation. But okay, but am I am I liable for eating gid Nasheh? So the answer is it's actually a machloket. It's the Mishnah in the seventh parak of Chul and It's a machloket between Rabbi Yehuda and Chachamim. Rabbi Yehuda says I am liable, and Chachamim say I'm not. And what's their reasoning? who was it who got the prohibition to eat Gideon Hashem? So Rebihuda says, Yaakov, it's in the story of Yaakov, Yaakov had a wrestling match, and then it says, therefore B'nai Israel, don't eat Gideon Hashem, it was, it was Yaakov allowed to eat pork roast? Sure, mm-hmm. why not? So that means that every animal was available to Yaakov, and if Gideon Hashem became prohibited, it means it's prohibited in every animal. And therefore, if I eat the Gidon Hashem of a pig, I eat Gidon Hashem. But Chachayim saying, no, Gidon Hashem was given in Harsinai. Which means Yaakov himself could have eaten Gidon Hashem. Gidon Hashem was given in Harsinai. And therefore, when Hashem prohibited Gidon Hashem, it was only Gidon Hashem, those animals that you're otherwise allowed to eat. Now, you're right, Robert, that if I ate the Gideon HaShem of a pig, I might be in violation of eating a pig, depending how much I had. But not Gideon HaShem according to Chachamim. So how do we understand it? We understand as follows. The mitzvot were given in Harsinai. But when Moshe writes the Torah, he puts certain mitzvot next to certain stories to give us the background. This is exactly what the Gemara Chulin says. That the story of Gidon Hashem tells us why we do, why we why we avoid it. Therefore, the mitzvah is placed there, so we'll understand the background. But it wasn't given there. And now we roll into the Book of Bamidbar, and there's a particular literary style in Bamidbar which is interesting, which is the Torah tells us a story, and then there's a series of mitzvot that somehow relate to that story. But it doesn't mean those mitzvot were given as a result of the story. They're already given, but now the story has a connection. So, for instance, we were given a mitzvah that when we come into the, that, when we bring a korban, we have to bring with it some oil and some flour and some wine. It's called nesachim. That's a mitzvah. I want to bring a korban shlamim, I have to bring with it, depending on the kind of animal. Uh, half, if it's a big animal, half a heen of oil mixed in with a. a um, uh, three uh, isaron of uh, flour mixed as a mincha and half a hin of wine. Okay. But the Torah writes it immediately in the, after, in the aftermath of the Mraglim because it's part of the information that we are coming into the land. And those are the three famous products of the land. And it's praise for the land. And then the mitzvah of challah is given. Challah was probably given before. But the idea is that it's, it's connecting it. So it's like like saving our relationship with the land as it were. Duma clearly was given earlier. Why does it show up where it does? Because it shows up right before the death of Miriam and Aro. It's associated with death. Okay, very good. So now, when was Tzitzit given? Tzitzit, we have to assume, was given at Arsini. So why does Tzitzit show up here, right before Korach? Because Tzitzit both connects to the Korach story, which has to be here for another reason, and it connects to the Meraglim story. Look at the wording of the, of the Parshav Tzitzit. What's the goal of it? I said, we come back to that. V'loh taturu, do not stray after your eyes and your heart. Where does that word show up? What were the scouts actually called in the Torah? They weren't called spies. What were they called? Hatarim et Latur They're supposed to seek out the land. The same word is used here. And by the way, in the punishment, Moshe tells them, your children that you thought were going to be killed will bear your sin of straying. And here it's Asheratem Zoni Machareim. In other words, the Torah deliberately uses words that connect us with the Miraglim story in the Tzitzit mitzvah, which means if the Miraglim story doesn't happen, I have to still believe we're going to get the mitzvah of Tzitzit. But it might be worded differently. And then it dovetails with the next piece, which is Korach. So they all kind of interweave. Okay. So now let's get back to it. When do we think Korach probably happened? So I'm going to make the following suggestion and then come back to D'Artan and Aviram. At what point would it be reasonable to challenge Moshe over a selection of Aharon? So again, I'm going to posit it has to be before Nadevanaviyu. Because once Nadevanaviyu are killed, holding Torah in their hands, nobody's going to be so foolish to say, "Okay, I'm going to stand up in front of God with Torah in my hand and see if he likes me or not. It's a very bizarre, masochistic move to make. So what happened before Nadevanaviyu were killed? What was the week before were killed? What was happening during that week? That was the seven days of miluim, of investiture, of inauguration of the koanim, inauguration of the mikdash and of the koanim. And that would make perfect sense at that point for Korach to say to Moshe in front of everybody, you know what, you're the leader, I understand, but why this mishkan that we're setting up, why have you selected your brother and and his sons to take over? What about me and my sons? And so the test is run. It would make a lot of sense that it happened there. I'm simply taking the Ibanez thinking and moving it back a notch. But you cannot argue that Datan and Aviram at that point have a claim because their claim is you brought us out in the desert to die. Why would we think that? We're camped at the foot of our Sinai. We evidently have an oasis around us. We're, we're, we've been here for almost a year. And now we're camped and we're ready to march. And by the way, why would they have a claim? I'm talking about the Ibanez about being from Shevet and getting and getting jilted. They're part of a camp that's already, um, it's already not the, the main camp, not the front camp. Reuven already got jilted a long time ago. So what I'd like to suggest is another piece of the Torah's narrative style, which is to weave stories together that are thematically related, even though they might not be chronologically overlapping or contemporaneous. And that is that we have here a story of rebellion. There is one major rebellion that happened against Moshe, which happened back at the foot of Sinai with the selection of the Kohanim, and that's the Karach rebellion. We don't want to tell that in Shmot Vaikra Vayikra because that's not what Shemot Vayikra is about. So it, come, it belongs in Bamidbar, which is the story of Am Yisrael struggling with its own identity as a nation. That's what the book is about. It's a book about community. It's a book about census, numbers, but it's a book about the community. And part of the challenge of the community is, how is the community going to work under leadership? By the way, it begins with leadership and ends with transfer of leadership. And so you have a rebellion that takes place at this point in time when they've been told they're going to die in the desert. That's Navira. In the meantime, you have a rebellion that happened a while back that gets woven in here, which is the Rebellion of Korach. And please take a look here at what happens in this story. Here's what I did. I took the story, and I simply painted it. And you notice that Korach, and then Datan Navira, so now the whole interaction with Korach, which you talked about with the sensors, and the Torah, is in blue. And then Moshe separately summons, notice, separately summons for Datan Navira. And they say, oh, you didn't bring us to a good land, you brought us to a bad land. And now Moshe speaks to Korach. Notice, at only one point does he ever talk to all three of them. Because they're not the same story. We'll have to see that one place. Now Moshe says to Korach, you guys stand with your Torah, let's see what happens. Okay. And then what happens here? We now get to Datanaviram. And Datanaviram, he comes and they all come outside. And Moshe says, okay, you think I'm not God's agent? Fine. If I'm not God's agent, nothing will happen now. If I am God's agent, then the earth's going to open up and, spoil, and swallow you. And that's exactly what happens. But Korach's not part of that, Korach's somewhere else. In the meantime, what happens? Fire comes out and devours the 250 men holding the Torah. I told you. Now they Ravio. That I why idea. why, Rabbi? Why do you say Korach someplace else? He's not part of those who are swallowed up. Because in the last Pasuk here, it says fire came out from God and devoured the 250 men who were having the who held the Torah, which is Korach's people. So it's as if there's two different stories going on. There's a story about people getting swallowed up by an earthquake, and there's a story about Two rebels getting burned up, holding Torah. So the Torah story is the Korach story. And when Moshe comes out, he speaks to Datan and Aviram. Uh, take a look here. By um, by right? And he speaks to them. He says, "Get away!" And Datan and Aviram come out, right? And they and they see uh, and they come out with their families. And Moshe says, "Now you'll know that I'm really the sent." And and I and and uh, and you know if I God did not send me if you die a regular death but if God creates something opens up the earth etc cetera, etc cetera, good and what happens here is we have a couple a couple of phrases that are problematic. Um, Hashem says get everybody around to the place of me, Korach Data Naviram, and the place of Korach Datanaviram, fine but then all the interactions are data viram and not Korach. And then suddenly in here, it says, and it's as if the text is deliberately trying to weave together two disparate stories, which clearly in the rest of the text are different things. The claim is different. The people are different. And no point do they get mixed in together. That's why the red and the blue are separate. And it says that the text is trying to say, look, we're trying to tell you stories about rebellion. There's two very major rebellions that happened. And we're weaving them together into one story. So you'll see this is what rebellion looks like. It's not the only time that that happens. Back in chapter 11, we had three verses about people who had a big lust, and then fire came down and burned them up. And then we had other people grumbling about the food. There's nothing that says that that's at the same time. But that's the food grumbling story. Right? And then there is the, the, we're going to die in the desert story. That's the And then there's the rebellion story. That's Korach. Basically, what Pamidbar is, is a collection of the various narratives that happen from Sinai, after leaving Sinai, or being at Sinai, until getting to the entry point to Israel, and all of the difficulties they endured, and how they came through them. In some cases, scarred, in some cases, unscathed. And so, we take a look at it, and then we see that the connection between Sitzit and Korach, which becomes prominent in the Midrash, and kor- prominent in Korach's words, is really occasioned by the deliberate literary placement of these pieces where they are in order to give us more insight into what's going on. The Torah is not concerned with chronology except where it is, meaning the default is that it's not, and there's myriad examples of that in the Torah where stories are not told in order because the order is not the point, the point is the message. And here the message is how you deal with rebellion, and you notice that Moshe deals with each rebellion separately, on its own terms, you notice how brilliantly Moshe responds to Korach by switching the mode of, of the challenge so that ultimately the, the truth prevails. And we, when he comes to Datan and it's a whole different challenge. It's a whole different problem, and he deals with it that way also. Moshe does not deal with it in a monochromatic way, but rather in a, an appropriate way for each rebellion. And it's woven together because the purpose of this section of Amidbar is to talk about rebellions. So a different way to look at the story of Korach and the role of Datta Naviram in there. And keep these pages because it'll be helpful to see it with the color, to see, uh, to see how these different things play out. Right. Uh,